No matter who you are, where you are, or what you celebrate, it's only one thing I have to say this holiday season. Hen... Shin... It's the most wonderful time of the year here at Common Rider for me. The end. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that's uh, on last. So on last week's episode, um, Kamsak Senpai said, yeah, like I can't wait for 2020 to be over. And I agree. <laughs> exactly. And I'm keeping with me as like staff. And it's a uh, man. This year's kind of sucked all around. <laughs> Huh. I'm I'm pretty ready for 2019 to be over myself, so I I can understand Copacetic's thought process there. Yeah, I'm still waiting for like a 2060 to end. Honestly, I I feel like we're all there, and yeah. we'll get through this 2016 through 2021 space of time together. Yeah, hopefully by 2024. That's maybe a little, a little too optimistic. Yeah, let's not get crazy now. Our next episode would technically be released after the year turns over, but, um, or would it be? It might hit right on New Year's Eve, actually, but let's pretend this is the end. Um, it's also the holiday season. Um, I've talked a lot to people. Um, it's weird. It's like, it's like, a am talking about a theme, but also there's not always like a ton to talk about. Like, I just like do the non-religious, like Christmas. I like to give gifts, but there's like not like a ton uh, because I know like you're not like a big like like a holiday person, Steph. Mm-hmm. Very true. Is there like a uh not this like season like holiday that you're like really big on though? Or um, I I guess as far as like regular holidays go, um, I'm really big on like Thanksgiving and Halloween. Aside from that, um, what I'm really looking forward to this year is one of our cousins um, and her fiance have decided that they're going to get married uh, Saturday, as a matter of fact, a couple of days from now. So um, I'm pretty stoked about that. I could really take or leave Christmas for the most part, but I'm excited that we have an additional thing to get together with everybody else for. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, I like... I'm always like so weird about the holidays because like I don't have my family in my life. Like I like um right. I always like remember that scene in like Kill Bill Volume Two where like Uma Thurman has like <laughs> nobody on her side of the wedding and like this probably is like oh wow that's kind of badass but it's also kind of like weird, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and that's something that I definitely love about that set of movies is that they, they take like a normal human experience and make it into something where you're either like, I'm judging the shit out of that, or I can relate way too hard to that situation. But um, you actually have one more thing that has uh, just started now. and uh, You have fully started and launched your own show and website for Arcade Militia. Yes, the uh, much talked about process in the works uh i think the way that i phrased it to our friends the other day was nobody should have let jackie and i start a show because we are both the world's worst sufferers of adhd and the fact that we're allowed to run around and start podcasts unsupervised tells you everything you need to know about starting a podcast 
Um, but we we are pretty stoked about it now that we finally got everything off the ground and um, we actually just recorded the next episode that's going to come out and are working on editing that now. So um, stay tuned if you want to listen to it. I like um had the Twitter handle for copyright with me in like April. It started the show in like October. So yeah. I know that feeling like um, I and it. what happened was I was just like, it's September. I got to fucking just like start this show. Uh, and that's how like it all happened. It's tough to start something. And also like it's like very easy to be like, ah, ah starting. But once you pop the fun, don't stop. Like you keep going like you have exactly. a commitment to yourself other people that is that first step too is the hardest one that you'll ever take and that's something that i kind of have tried to push along to people the entire journey is like i've been on a couple of podcasts but starting one yourself like the actual reality is getting over your own ego and it isn't really until you do that that you can start actually being a content creator but then once you kind of like break that seal it's it's like all hands on deck. You're ready to do anything and everything that comes your way. So if anyone out there is considering it, highly recommend just jump that first hurdle and you're good. Yeah, um, I forget what it's called. I'm f- feel super bad, but like it's a, a like model of mastery where like um, there's like four steps. There's being bad at something and not knowing. There's being bad at something and knowing. There's being good at something and trying, and there's being good at something and not trying. And I think a lot of people get stuck in that second step where like, oh, wait, I'm going to do something, but it's not going to be as good as I want it to be. Well, yeah, that's doing something, but you'll get there. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, once again, like I said, it's just it's having to get over yourself for that very first step. But then once you do, it kind of seems like everything lines itself up after that, like because you kind of um inadvertently put yourself on a type of schedule and you start to have expectations for yourself so yeah do that first step and you know take the plunge i forget if it's eight or ten episodes once you reach that mark you've beaten like 90 percent of podcasts you know exactly and then you're ready to move on to the donkey kong fight what has been the topics of like your episode so far um, first episode, um, Jackie was explaining kind of, um, how, uh, roguelikes work to me. Um, I wanted to say side scrollers initially because that's how I always viewed roguelikes before, but she explained the difference to me and kind of like how those come to be. And then for our episode that's about to come out, we did a, um, discussion on the difference between Assassin's Creed Odyssey and Assassin's Creed Valhalla, which are the two most recent games that that uh, franchise released and kind of just how we um, embraced those two games and how we compared them to each other. Um, And we're going to have more um, like in-depth topics as they come about, but now we're just kind of fielding things back and forth across the fence to each other. And those were um, definitely two topics that we've discussed at length and kind of wanted to put out there for anybody else that maybe wanted to feel engaged with something that they needed a little bit more information on or maybe had um, kind of played in passing when it came to video games and 
what our takes on them were. Yeah, no, um, I um have having the um rogue like deck builder conversation with like Ali a lot, where like she's fallen hard for games like that, like um Slay the Spy or Dicey Dungeon, mm. um Inscription. It's a great like genre. Um, I would uh love like like there's like so many great like uh weird little bits of like knowledge you have to know, but like it's like that's not really fun like there's lots of stuff where it's like oh like it's just like based on you picking stuff up and like having that conversation with like people and like going through that is like a very like much better way like a much cooler way to do that honestly yeah and i think that the reason why it worked for us is because um she's very much like a a numbers and statistics person like she will look at any type of um, game that you can think of and her first thought is how am I min-maxing this? How am I you know, using all optimal strikes to my absolute advantage? Whereas I'm the type of person that will open up a game and be like, what looks cool? What's gonna make me have the most fun when I'm doing this, even if it is the weakest thing that our character can do? And I think that that's kind of um, Part of the draw is that anytime you're listening to us talk about these forms of media, you're looking at it from two different ways of consuming it. And for her to be a power player and for me to be just more like, oh, no, I kind of want to see how many people I can blow up with this. That's where the appeal lies with us, I think. No, yeah, like I, um, all three of us, uh, played a game that was very open-ended and like oh like pick what adjectives you have and like jackie was very much like here are the most effective ones for being good at this and exactly yes yeah if you um ever listen to the three of us play a game like that you have her her entire approach to gameplay on lock because she is a very strategic and tactical person which also makes her a phenomenal GM because she's always thinking a step ahead of you. So she's just she's a great person to talk to about anything gaming related. Let me know if you ever like, oh, and let's explain what a total party wipe is because I'll like absolutely like come in and like be a player there and like at the end like she'll just be cackling like and that's I love that and yeah we definitely need to plan for that episode just because she would get a kick out of. Uh, Playing with someone who has a GM's mind like she does. So that would just be the most fun I can imagine. Yeah, that was awesome. Like, I am very excited to uh, hear you do more. But um, this week, we are back on some old shit, too, with eight more episodes of Murder Kiva. And these are eight episodes of TV. I'll, I'll tell you, these are eight solid episodes. This is we're in common rider territory oh gosh yeah yeah <laughs> um so we looked at episode 17 through like 24 and uh how we're gonna do this is kind of like a uh in the chunks because like this show is very much in the like two episode arcs and uh there's a lot going on here <laughs> <These episodes. laughs> but um what how are you feeling about the show right now though before we start with this uh so when I walked away from, excuse me, episode 24, which was the last one of our arc for this episode, I was cussing you so hard. I mean, just so hard because I wanted to be able to keep watching because we're at 
the part of all common writers shows that you get to where you finally start like having some questions answered. But while you're doing that, some more things kind of arise. So it was this was a really great point in the show to take a break and talk about it. But on the other hand, there was a part of me that was like, no, I need to know what happens next. This is fucking ridiculous. Like, fix this right now. So, yes, uh, very engaging, very much a part of it, very much wanted to keep watching and figure out what happens next. But I'm trying not to pull the whole um, thing that I did the first time we watched a Common Rider series. So I'm I'm keeping myself in check. Yeah, like we're halfway through now, uh, which is cool. Like um, and the show reaches a point where it's like not trying to satisfy the core themes it's just like trying to do stuff and it's like establishing like the middlest chunk like here and like next episode are to me like my favorite times of like a lot of like camera shows because like they don't have to have the biggest battles or like the like endings but they also have everybody comfortable and are mm-hmm. going to do more more interesting stuff with their themes you know yeah, I I think you're right, and I think that's kind of what I was trying to describe, too, is I've noticed that this is kind of, um like, standard format for the Common Writer shows, is you spend the first part of the series kind of confused about what's actually going on and just kind of getting attached to the characters, but then there's always this sweet spot, like we're in right now, where you want this part to keep going, because this is where you, once again, start to try to get answers and start to see everybody's backstory. I know like from a logical standpoint, this is also the part where we're going to start winding down, but this is my favorite part in any series to be in where you're just right at that spot of, okay, this is all coming together. Finally, like I'm starting to get a really clear picture of what this world is. We were at this spot. um, Was like the first time, like all three writers worked together in like Hibiki and like had that like, one triple thing it was like this like great moment and then the show was like kicking this other gear but then like got cut off halfway through and like got like a new writing team so like this is going to be a much more consistent show which is great yeah definitely and i i i hated that it happened in the last show that we watched where it took such a dramatic turn in the middle of the series but i also appreciate that in this series this kind of break in the theme was exactly what you needed for the main character to start to develop as a writer. Um, So it added a little bit of additional depth that I don't feel like we've seen, at least in the series that I've watched. Um, This was very important, like for the main character to start to, you know, find his own balance as a writer. In Hippie's special show that wasn't allowed to continue, this show is a little bit closer to the formula, but doing some very interesting stuff. I'm actually mm. much more a fan of the show, I think, on the rewatch. Like I remember really liking the show years ago. And I and like I don't think like it, it definitely has a fandom reputation that is like I think super wrong and based off of like dudes being like, huh, he's not cool enough, you know? Yeah, and and honestly, I could see that because for a lot of the season, he isn't. Like, he is the exact opposite of what you would expect to be this, you know, kind of common writer hero standout in the series. But I love it. it, 
once you start kind of identifying with the reasons behind the issues he has that you start to be like, okay, you know what? He's actually kind of perfect to be a writer because he, you know, he has this past that he's slowly learning to embrace the heritage that he's like working his issues out with. And I think too, it's just like, um, it's like how like the whole, like a big point of media criticism in like fandom circles in the past couple of years is like people pushing back against like, Hey, what do you mean? Strong female character. Sometimes like you can have a messed up like person, like a person who's weak, a person who's not perfect, a person who's flawed. And I think like, it's this thing here. It's like your protagonist doesn't have to be cool or like good at enacting things. Mm-hmm. It's fun to have different stories and different characters. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And he adds a different element because he. Uh, OK, so I'd argue up to this point that there hasn't been a a male protagonist that was like overly macho. But in this series, he takes it to a different degree of not only not being like this really machismo character, but also being one who is deeply sensitive and deeply in his own head in a way that you haven't really seen the heroes do up to this point. And kind of having that journey with him and watching him work out his self-confidence definitely adds like some sentimentality to the character he's portraying. And like, uh, even in like the, if you look at all the writers up to this point that like have come out in the era that Kiva's in, uh, a lot of them are idiots or like shy. It's like idiot, 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 asshole, idiot, Hibiki, uh, shy, shy. And, and like, there's like one person like two years ago who's like, more of a traditional protagonist, but like he's almost like played for like laughs and parodies and like I'm Rita Kabuto and like the series after this also gets a character who's like a little bit more cool, but also like it's a point to it too, where he's like this very sad character, like deep down. And then I think people like forget because they're like, Oh, I think, wow. Like, wow. Cool monster suits <laughs> that they're like, Oh, this is the show about, like people dealing with stuff and like having power and having ideals and how that clashes and how that becomes like the whole like driving force. Like, Oh, what do different people do when they believe in different things, but they have the power to enact it on the world, you know, that's the whole thing. And I feel like this show does a much deeper examination of that than we've seen previously, especially with a couple of episodes that we're going to talk about, you know, and, kind of how he's dealing not only with having that power, but how he's going to, you know, deal with the rest of the world while having it is something that's, I mean, it's important. And I feel like it's something that should be examined more in like these superhero roles. But, you know, this, this show definitely does that exceptionally well, kind of rounding out characters and making them deal with the real life in a way that you don't get to see with like these fantasy genres often and the carbon writer is very much a show that is aware that it is about dialect and it is about like people talking like 
Batman is the closest thing that we get. I feel like in like mainstream, like American, like superior media for mm-hmm. the way that a lot of copyrighted characters will talk to the people who have the monstrous abilities and like talk to like the people that can become monsters. Like ha- that happens a bunch mm-hmm. in this show, for example. And like a lot of like other copyrighted shows that are like a-, a couple times, like a season, like they'll sit down and be like, Oh, like you're a monster. Hey, and they'll like just be on a bench and then later on they'll fight. Like that's a different way to have a hero. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, but yeah, um, let's get into these episodes though. Um, and, uh, this first set is, uh, episode 17, lesson my way and quartet. Listen to your heart. So the plot line for Wataru his episode is that he is just he starts he wakes up in Castle Duran covered in flowers because he got bored. The arms monsters are talking about they should kill him because then they can like leave the castle. He's in roses like in the opening. Then he wakes up at the shop and is like, oh, and he's like, hey, I'm really sad because all the good people I meet keep being fangires, which is true. Mm-hmm. And it's true. <laughs> like four or five times now. And then he's like, why do I fight? And then um, he goes missing and he goes on a common Rider Hippocky motorcycle nature trip. <laughs> <laughs> which is great. Um, and he meets like a lady archer and is the most adorable boy. And she loves it. Right. Um, and like the rest of the episodes are like him like dealing with not wanting to fight and why he fights and like reaffirming that in the end. Mm-hmm. And yeah, um, that's like his plot here. Um So I really, 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 really liked that the way that they paint painted him kind of having this sudden I guess it wasn't sudden. This is something that they've kind of hinted at through a lot of the series, but I really liked that we're now focusing on kind of his whole um, resistance to fighting because, you know, if you're watching him throughout the rest of the series, it's pretty obvious that that isn't his personality type. Like, he isn't a warrior. But the way that they start to kind of connect that to the theme of him wanting to protect people he cares about is something I enjoyed very much. Um, But not only that, but this is where they start to build up those um, connections to the past that they keep flashing to. And the way that they start to the show starts to kind of build all those together and you start to finally see like what all of that was leading up to and how intense those connections become. Um, was probably one of my favorite things out of this series of episodes was just because this is where you start to see that, you know, those kind of um, yeah. fires start plugging into each other, I guess. Because, like, he's gone from this, like, person who's away from society and people to he's with them, and he's like, man, this sucks. <laughs> it yeah, sucks to like people. kind of, like, struggling to understand what he was missing that whole time. <laughs> Yeah, and I think um, it's always great to like hear a big moment for every writer is their why I fight moment. It's like the I want like speech in like a 
Disney movie. It's like, okay, here is why I am. Here's what I believe. And here's how that relates to this act, this kind of like cross left bear that they need to fight. And also like, not just that, but like a big part of modern writer is part of that cross to bear is that at some point they realize I am just like killing people whenever I fight. I am like killing someone, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think what makes it even more interesting for him though, is once again, going back to him kind of having been a sensitive carrier character from the very first episode. Uh, There's something in that that adds a little bit more depth to his struggle because you feel like it's coming from a very sincere place. Like, because it isn't, his name like he's not an alpha dude like a lot of the guys that are in this series so it intentionally so very sincere to have him have that struggle and to do it so openly um and speaking of alphas let's talk about the plot line that nago has this episode arc (laughs) at least two episodes so (laughs) (laughs) there's this dude that shows up in a bill clinton mask to rob an armored car and then Nago shows up to fight him, but can't get his button out. So the guy beats him up and like drives away. So Nago chases the car, chases the car, chases the car. Those revealed the guy is a fake guy or beats him up. Then like the end of the first episode, like he gets to an amphitheater and like starts to fight the guy. Or sees that like um the fang guy is like fighting Kiva and like just goes fucking ape shit because he like has um Three of his is like um his whistles are just to steal Kiva's weapons. So when Kiva tries to like summon a weapon, he grabs it and he just beats the shit out of Kiva. Like yeah. bad. I mean, and kind of like had seen the tension building between them over the course of the series, but I will say that that show ending with him just going after Kiva, I was not expecting. Like they'd kind of been playing his character as like this really straight edge D bag kind of guy from the beginning, but then to just see him go all in and then, you know, not show any kind of remorse over it. Just like, yep, that's who I was going for the entire time. Fuck the monster. I wanted Kiva. That was just, it was a really intense ending (laughs) for that particular episode. And like, I think like you can't, the show made an episode made like an episode arc where this character was just running through the streets, trying to beat the shit out of people obsessed with like getting trophies. He's not meant to be cool. Right. I know. Um, and yeah, yeah, just when he like loses the finger and like Kiva though, he like starts shooting the amphitheater. Then he untransforms and punches a wall till his hand is bleeding and is covered up the rest of the episode. A wall like I, that was one of the first moments in a long time that I was just like, oh, yeah, this is a kid's show <laughs> when I saw the blood on the wall. And I was like, that's not OK. <laughs> Somebody needs to talk to that guy. Like, like uh, what kid show do you know that has done this much as far as him beating up the main character and then punching a wall for like, here's why toxic masculinity is bad. kids. <laughs> like, shit. Exactly. The bad part, it wasn't until he was punching the wall and I saw the blood on the wall that I suddenly remembered, oh, yeah, this is a kid's show. <laughs> like, that was what drew me out of it. Nothing else. And then, like, the whole thing, like, um, in this episode, 
he catches the guy again. Then the police show up as he's punching him. He starts beating up the police too, and they're like, "Oh, we'll arrest you if you keep beating the shit out of us." <laughs> yeah, that was another thing where I was like, "Well, those definitely aren't American police." That dude, uh, he's already gotten away with way too much. And the follow-up is that, like, he is screaming that, like, he can't be, like, stopped. He's a bounty hunter. But then, like, he breaks the guy from police custody to beat him up and gets his button and then, like, is like, oh, it's great. And lets the guy go. And he just goes off to be a fan guy. He's like, I I got the button. Yeah. And then it turns out that the button is just, like, this, like, cheap uh, thing that he's put together himself. Like, it wasn't even anything valuable. It was, like, something you would do in middle school. It's his, like, trophies from, like, each person he captures. And, like, I guess this guy's jumpsuit had really sturdy buttons. This is why this whole thing happened. Just, damn. I kind of feel like I wasn't doing enough with my life because I don't have a collection of buttons. But, like, yeah. For real, though. Like, people make the argument that this show, Wataru, isn't the main character. It's like, yes, he is. Other characters being more action-y does not mean he's not the main character, especially with, like, this is, like, the end result of, like, this character's development up to this point is him, like, doing all this, like, weird anger violence. He's just completely possessed these episodes. Yeah, and I, f- I feel like you get that from almost all of the characters except for Wataru, and that's how you could kind of make the argument that he's the main character is because... Out of all of them, he's one of the few that's actually still developing. Like, when you're talking about the heroes in this series, you're talking about fully formed men who are already in their roles, and they already know who they are and what they're representing. Like, Wataru is still the one that is still questioning his place and trying to figure out where he fits in in the world. So, yeah, he... I, I don't really feel like there's a valid argument to say that he isn't the main character just for that reason alone. It's not like though that like the other characters like aren't developing. Like you see the character growth happening, but like Wataru is somebody like he's the protagonist, I think, because like he has this apprehension and like seeing all these people who think they have it figured out just fucking mangle it and need to go through bigger change almost is like really well done, I think. Oh, definitely, because it's almost like you're watching Wataru be a very, uh, I'll try to fit this together. You're looking at him being a very intelligent and advanced, mature, like high school student mm-hmm. and being the first one to figure out that adults are fucking idiots. Like that hard lesson that we all had to learn that adults don't actually have it together you're kind of watching him process that in real time. And I think that that's what makes him such a relatable hero. Yeah. I really do love the way that um, he's just so, (laughs) he starts the show so like puppy eyed for everybody. And now he's like, kind of like slowly, even like um, there's this point later, like where he says he he doesn't like think he was that bad. And like, once again, Nago's like, how dare you speak up? And like he shirks back, but differently this time too. He's like, kind of like, Oh, I realize that things I believe aren't wrong just because like other people don't believe them kind of thing too. Like he's like starting to gain that confidence, you know? Yeah. 
I noticed that too, especially in that scene, because it there that very was an instance where you kind of expected him just to fall back into his old pattern of like disappearing into the wall. But in this instance, he doesn't. He kind of just takes it on the chin, but he doesn't disappear or slink into himself. Like he stays present for the rest of the conversation. You can just tell that he doesn't outwardly agree with it, even if he isn't willing to publicly disagree. And that might seem like a a small development, but when you're someone who is like working past trauma and not really sure how to confront people directly, I mean, he played that perfectly as an actor. Just that feeling of, well, you know, I don't agree with you, but I'm not really willing to get into a thing right now. And he does it in a way that you still don't feel like he was being any way confrontational he just wasn't quite being a pinata like he had been before mm. um another arc that i think is interesting in this episode is the arc for otoya in the 80s um he basically gets like asked for a let for a family friend of yuri's their child is worried about passing a violin school entrance exam and she says she'll go on like a date with him and he's just like very much like okay i'll teach just not those brat like i'll just like whatever mm-hmm. and uh he meets this girl like mommy who is just like um very upset like about this all and like um he's like super real with her like oh it's clear like you don't have talent <laughs> like <laughs> I will say that for this um, spread of episodes that we watched, I I already had kind of had a soft spot for Toyo just because, I mean, how can you not? He has one of those personalities. Like, all of us have known someone like him. He's just one of those people that will draw you into him whether you like it or not. But I liked the fact that they started to give that character so much more depth. And especially in this set of episodes, you can see kind of what he's been hiding from people all along and that's just how wise he is but he does everything so flamboyantly that you don't know to take him seriously almost until it's too late and this is like um i can't remember if it's 17 or 18 where you really start to see that with how he's developing this relationship with this child that he's taken on it kind of looks like the entire time that he's blowing off that responsibility and then you like in the end, it all comes together like he was trying to teach her a lesson in the best way he knew how to. Um, so I very much enjoyed just even in these couple of episodes, how much his character got fleshed out. And I just like love the honesty of like, oh, you don't care about this. Like, this is not something that's like his like supernatural trait is that he like understands violin deeply and all the emotions. He's like, oh, like no talent isn't even like a knock on her skills is more like oh you like literally this is not like yeah the right aura this isn't your thing and i think that's why he's so fun because he can say something like that so bluntly but then you also are able to very easily get the impression that he doesn't care he's not judging you for it he's literally just telling you what he sees and what he sees is you don't care about the fucking violin and i love the way that he's like just like has pranks with her he like has to like chase her down he has to like get her food he has to have her work off his 
tab by cleaning the toilets. One of the things I wrote in my notes for this because I tried to be really minimalistic uh, was just, you know, his charm. It it just goes across all generations because all the girls love to hate him. And that's kind of the point you get to by the end of the, I think, 18th episode is just the fact that he's got all these girls that like to be around him. But God, if they aren't annoyed by him on a constant level. And. I also love the way that he has that like whole like pool do and like he accidentally wins with like Jiro. It's like, oh, this is great. It's like kind of his character. I think that show is like losing through winning. Yeah. And then panning it to be like something he did on purpose. Like to me, especially against the someone who was playing just such an alpha character as Jiro, just them having those scenes together was such a delight to see. Yeah, and um, I do really love how in the end she like gets in and she plays her way with like a broken string and then she hears him play and, and like he even says, hey, like, are you sure you want to hear me play? And she does. She's like, oh, wow, I don't love this. Right. <laughs> I don't care about this. And it's such a beautiful moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I loved the way they did that because obviously that could have been something that the writers played off in a very cheap way. Like her just, you know, they were out for ice cream and she's like, yeah, you know what? Violin, not so much for me. But the way that they did it to still focus him as a character that had this very particular skill set in this very particular value and him warning her without warning her off that was just it was so well written and so well played like the entire thing was just a joy to watch he gave her the respect that she needed to like actually be herself yeah especially after like almost putting her down the entire time like you can't do this you're not you know you're not gonna be able to do this if you don't care about it and this that and the other and to kind of see that culminate and see why he had been talking to her that way and the place of understanding he was coming from was so much fun to see a storyline play out that way. And she connects the uh, two timelines because like 22 years later, she's an Olympic archer and like she's the one who like beats Wataru and is like, what's this like puppy with a shirt that says stupid on it who's like doesn't know what archery is yeah and the way that they not only tell that story but the fact that his uh friends are calling her grandma the entire time i i just i cannot stop laughing at that it was just it was so much fun i i loved the whole interaction with that couple of shows right there and i love how like his becoming a stronger person he's still like spongebob like can't lift up like a like bare bar basically at the weights like he's like oh no it's gonna happen it's falling down on me yeah and his uh his belt beating him up every time he's in the bathtub like that's hilarious to me because not only do you have like the excuse me him interacting as a very real person but him like not being afraid to be vulnerable that's just such a great thing for a hero to play off of. Mm. And um, one other small thing here is that um, he um, Kivat is sick here. So th- the episodes actually end with like all three of the arms monsters, like becoming like a fusion form. And that's how like he like fights the like finger in the end. It's like a 
called like dobaki form is like the first syllable of one form the like second syllable and like <laughs> all that and yeah it's fun i think that this might be the only only, only time we see it honestly it's like a one time thing probably yeah but i mean didn't make it any less fun to see <laughs> yeah and i also love um how it ends with like he basically says I wonder who told her my dad's advice. And then like it zooms in a picture of his dad. Yeah. Yeah. That was kind of weird that he didn't put that together. Like this is the exact same thing that you have heard in the past. Like, how's this not clicking for you that this is, you know, maybe met someone who was exposed to him at some time in the past. Yeah. But, um, I really liked this arc. It might've been my favorite of the four, but yeah, I could see that for sure. Okay, so after that, episode 19, my favorite word to come out of the series so far, Qvanxious. Yeah. I, 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 not only the whole thing with Rook in that storyline, but then we also get introduced to Queen Maya, who BT dubs, favorite monster ever. I don't care who else they introduce. I'm in love. Um, she's very attractive. Yes. Well, not only that, but you know, I have been pretty honest about the fact that I love a woman who can kick my ass and she very clearly can. So between that and the fact that she just, she plays a great foil to all the kind of ridiculous monsters we've had up to this point. Um, I, I would have to say that probably these two episodes episode episode, Jesus Christ, that was a very bad mix of words. Episodes 19 and 20 are um, probably my favorite two out of this set, just because of that and um, the fact that we start to, once again, get a deeper dive into characters' backstories, which is also super fun while introducing a new character. Yeah, um, this episode 19, Fusion, or a Storm. Episode 20, Nocturne, the lovely messiah. So, um... What kind of character arcs could we have here? I feel like this is where we start to see that um, even within the Fangory world, there are rules and regulations that, you know, people, uh, people, monsters are expected to follow. Um, So that's pretty interesting because I I don't know about anyone else, but for me, I assume that when you're dealing with a kind of like monster realm, you're dealing with like the Wild West. So to see that there is like structure and hierarchy within this world was a very Mm -hmm. interesting take on, you know, how they operate. But not only that, we're starting now, even with the heroes, to start to dig in more to what's going on in their lives and kind of what their motivations are. Um. Which is something that overarches with all of the episodes we watched. But once again, just getting to see those things on a deeper level is so much fun. Because right now, before this, what we had was there is the Checkmate 4 and they lead the Fangire. We don't yet know what that means besides that Rook is extremely powerful. And he's also not really doing anything. The only thing we actually see him do is we know that he attacked the scientists that made the exosystem. So I'm kind of like, oh, he's like, he's not on the clock currently. He's just messing around. But when he was on the clock, he murked the people trying to fight like Fangire's the hardest, you know? Yes. And this is, correct me if my timeline's off. This is 
right when we see him uh, start to develop kind of his MO, right? Yeah, he's like just like playing his games and um, his game for this one is the wedding dress game. Yeah, and he decides that it's a uh, a timed run. I he clicks his uh, his digital watch, um, and I think that it kind of in his brain he's like set up these time trials for himself of how quick he can find a bride on her wedding day. It seems like is is his game, and um, you know causes as much mayhem as he can in that respect. Yeah, uh, like uh, the fun arc here is that. Um, this episode starts with like um Watara is like getting snails to make a Vardis and a bunch of like boys show up and are like yeah we're gonna beat the crap out of you ghost boy oh that's right that's when we start with the, the uh possession also isn't it and like Kengo saves him and like at the like restaurant like Kengo and Mengumi and then also Nago are like let's all go to a a like psychic and that's where like they ask who's Kiva and the psychic just says Kiva has anxiety and then Wataru passes out. It's exactly. like, oh no, my secret. That's and and that's where I got that from, that Kiva anxiety. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um he, he's being dope. being possessed by the spirit of Otoya this whole time as well. It's like, oh, which is fun. Um, what do you think about his mannerisms when he was being Otoya? I I loved the um, how much the actor was able to engage with Otoya's uh, flamboyancy. Like that was something that kind of pulled me out of the fantasy aspects of the show in a good way because it made me be like. Okay, this dude that's playing Wataru, he's got some range because he's also very much pulling off this like impression of his dad within the show and doing it in a way that like you can literally tell when he is being Wataru and when he's being a Toyu. And that's I mean, that is phenomenal. Um but I also loved like how much confidence it gave him while he was fighting. Because he was possessed by this spirit that I don't want to say doesn't care because it's not that he doesn't, but was much less concerned with like all the outside elements of life. So he was able to get the battle done and then get it over with because it isn't what he cares about. And I kind of spent the time after that hoping that some of those aspects of his dad kind of stuck to him. Because it made him a much more confident fighter as well as anything else. Not just kind of how he dealt with women, but kind of how he dealt with his relationships in general. So, like, uh, let's talk about Wataru, even as he's being possessed Mm -hmm. as the arc of Wataru, because there's another arc going on in the 80s. But so, like, he, like, immediately, like, flirts with um, flirts with Megumi. And then, like, later on is, like, getting groceries with, like, Shizuka and like when the boys show up like he beats the crap out of them and then like and he just like says too young for him yeah and like it's like oh like <laughs> he laughed hysterically I couldn't help it the first thing he actually does is he looks in her bag sees apples then looks at her and says sorry baby in 10 years that like takes an apple <laughs> and like, yeah that's 
that's how you make a likable asshole. Well, not only was that funny just because it was so out of character for Wataru and, and, you know, the actor and kind of how he's played this character the entire time, but her reaction to him and how she plays out that whole scene was gold. I mean, it was absolute fucking gold. She just, she looks at him and she reacts to him like he is a completely different person. I can't imagine having to do that on set, but I can't imagine it's easy either. And just for her to play off of that as well as she did, that just, you forget that you're dealing with actors when you deal with situations like that because they both played it so perfectly. Like, I had to remind myself that I was watching a show where there were people that were actually having to act this out because it just felt so natural. Like the whole set of scenes was just this run up into each other that was played so well by everybody that was involved. It just it was such a fun um, set of scenes to watch, especially all played off of each other. I think, too, like um, I just love how he navigates the modern world like he like immediately goes to like a maid cafe and is like okay I'll, I'll get fed this is perfect this is great this yeah. is what I want and in the way that um they deal with him coming in and out of Wartara's consciousness and how he has to deal with like the fallout from having played a more confident person just two seconds before that is so so much fun to watch because once again found myself physically laughing at several of those scenes just to watch him go from like this very confident version of his dad possessing him to this very Wataru. Oh God, don't touch me. Don't talk to me. Why is everyone around me? Like it was just, it was such a joy to see play out on screen. So I actually have to um, have a very important update to connect more Cabin Rider to the live action Sailor Moon. Oh God. Please share. So, um, in live action Sailor Moon, know how like, so I have not reached this character, but the actor for Shizuka a year or two earlier plays um, plays the live action Sailor Moon's daughter character. Oh my goodness! So one more connection to the hole there, but yeah, I just, feel like every time we talk, you give me another reason to watch this. <laughs> it's such a good show. It's so. So you will see the budget in Common Rider after you watch Pretty Guard Sailor Moon, but it's great. Like they have like um, Luna, the cat is played by like a plush. And half the time it's just like very clear puppeting. Nice. But yeah, so <laughs> it's great. But so one cool thing, though, is that. Then the bullies that were attacking him like throw a can and like the scariest like th- thing that could happen is the can doesn't make any noise and then a monster shows up. And they're like, oh, no, this is a very urban fear we have. <laughs> and um, I I actually feel bad for this monster a little bit because like he doesn't even get highly like human form, but like he's trying to eat some kids. Kiva shows up. Kiva gets more confident, beats him up more. And then he like runs away and Ixa attacks him. He's like, oh my God. Like just getting absolutely like wrecked. Yeah, no, I I get it. And I don't know. It it I liked kind of watching the the nasty kids have their comeuppance, but on the other hand, like kind of 
how he automatically goes into just, just absolutely destroying this finger. I was like, okay, well, they usually have a little bit more of a fighting chance than this. What is happening? Yeah, this guy has a bad day, I feel like. He's just like, okay. And like, there's a point, like, later, he's like, oh, like, a lot of my friends have been killed by Ixa. Show up and, like, fight. He's like, oh, this is kind of a a more honorable way to do it. Yeah, and I think that that also does a really good job of kind of um, setting up the difference between him and uh, Nago. Because Mm -hmm. you're dealing with one writer who is all about, like, purification and and creating this utopia. And then you're playing that against a writer who is just saying, look, just let everybody be cool. I literally don't want to deal with anyone unless they're hurting my friends. So... I, I mean, we have a lot of good parallels set up, I feel like, with Nago's character, but that's another good one that's kind of maybe a little bit lower key, is just kind of showing what their priorities are when they fight. We should actually talk about um, the arc that goes through for like Yuri and Fermigumi, though, because like, mm-hmm. um, so in the 80s, Yuri Otoya has a fake autograph from this like idol group that like Jiro likes and steals like the Ixa knuckle and then gives it to Yuri. Yeah. And that scene's great. Like I love that scene. It's like like the owner's there and it's like, oh like a real autograph. And then like in Until the corner it says yeah. Yeah. But she is just wrapped in fear when it's time to transform. Mm-hmm. Um and the same thing happens with Megumi where she can't transform into Ixa and like she has like a psychosomatic like foot injury where like she can't use her foot like her leg quits working yeah 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 yeah. so let's have a little inside base sometimes there's stuff that you know but hasn't been confirmed Mm -hmm. uh the way that the Otoya possessing Wataru completely changes and stops creeping on Megumi as soon as he finds out that Yuri's her mom. We already knew, but yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, I think that that's kind of a bit of foreshadowing on the writer's part, because you don't know at that time that, you know, by the time you get to the end of the uh, episodes that we're watching, there's a development in that area. So you're like, if you don't know that you're very much in real time watching him be like, Oh, okay. So in my timeline, yes, I did pursue this woman relentlessly, but now that I'm looking at like a product of her history, absolutely fucking not like playing around with that. (laughs) Also like he gives her this guidance, spends this time with her teaching her. It's clear that he's her dad, right? Like, Yeah, but it's also clear that he's working really hard to not, like, while also not saying that he's her dad, he's working very hard to not give her too many hints either. Or to, like, set himself up as some kind of protective presence in her life. Like, I think because he knew and loved her mom for so long, there's a part of him that knows that, like, if he came outright and said that, she wouldn't want anything to do with him. She'd probably go the opposite direction out of spite because mother's daughter. But I feel like the way that he plays it was just completely perfect for not only his character, but kind of how she, how she reacts to situations um, was just really well done. 
because he lets her figure out things for herself while kind of looking after her. And I think that's kind of how her personality is. And two interesting things I think is one, we've had the implication this whole time that Wataru and Megumi are half siblings. Like every way they interact has been that way for a minute. Um, and they even like in like the dating episode, the, there's a whole thing where like um, the girl that likes Wataru is like, oh, you want like an older sister type? And he's like, uh, sure. Uh, but um, there's also the oh, Toya that we're getting is condensed and able to help Megumi in a way that even the Wataru now took much longer and more mistakes to do. Like, it's very clear that, that like we're getting a preview of him at the end of his arc, too. Like, mm-hmm. this is like the mastery, like the I have matured version of him. Right. But I also feel like probably a part of that is his maturity and not just his, but like the kind of growth of the characters over the series. Because in the very first episode, I feel like all of them were kind of wild and reckless. But this was him kind of developing into a dude that was actually in love with her as opposed to just a guy who was trying to get her attention like at the beginning of the series so it's just another um kind of really great nod to the writing that they made space for each of the characters to develop and mature in their own way i liked seeing wataru in the outfit from like the internet too like i was very 80s that was great. Me too, especially because he was so proud of it. I mean, that was just it. It was so great. Um, and I have seen Wataru outside of this series now because, as I've said before, I track down the music for these because I always end up getting interested with that. But, um, so I've kind of like seen him, the actor in his different personas, but just seeing his range with being able to play his own dad, but not only do it, but do it so sincerely in, in such a fun way. was a great, just unique piece of media to watch. I just love that so much. Worth noting is that uh, we get three or four different songs that are brand new. We get a song for um, the Basher form. Um, and we also get like a, scene of like this like inner workings of how the dragon like launches them and everything which is new uh we get a song for guru form the like wolf form i think we get one for the frankenstein form but we also definitely get one for the emperor form at the end so like there's three to four new songs that are all i think have lead vocals by him which is kind of nuts yeah it is nuts and i think that in in earlier episode there's at some point they show a scene of him like being a rock star um Mm -hmm. yeah but it it was just so out of place with the character he plays in the show that even at the time i was like okay i i as a rational human being i know that this is an actor but this is jarring like don't do this all the common writer series i can't deal with it right now one of the most interesting backstory things that happens here is that um Otoya uh goes to who he thinks is Yuri. Turns out it's this new character, Maya, and he is spellbound by her. So he's like, that's weird. I'm never enraptured by like woman's beauty, which is a weird lie to yourself, but I guess I, he's right. From the King of Destiny there, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
he's ever speechless, I guess. Like, he's always talking. Yeah, uh, uh, that I could see, yeah. And, like, immediately, it's like, okay, there's more going on here. And they, like, are, like, it's clear that she's, like, it's the, like, JoJo's Pizarre Adventure thing, where, like, who has the stand? And, it like, is it the dude with the, like, Gucci G-string and, like, the, like, leather, like, vest? Or is it <laughs> Phil over here? You know, like, no, it's like the like weird, like purple hair, like G string guy that has like the powers. Exactly. She, her outfit is like this, like velvet and like leather and like her whole legs are out in like little booty shorts, but also like a hoodie. It's like a whole weird. <laughs> it's 2008. <laughs> it's hell for an 80s character. Yeah. True. So like she stops the rook from killing this bride. And says it's hers. And then turns out the bride is a fangire. And she broke the law for loving humans. Mm-hmm. Which was cool. Because then it, it starts up this whole other storyline within the series. That you kind of get to see play out over at least the next few episodes that we watch. Of, you know, even when she doesn't have any real action. You kind of see that character lurking in the background with these side stories. And you know, you kind of have an idea of what she's about now. So it's fun to kind of speculate on who she's watching and why, and like which one of them is the Fangary. And it just, it added a whole other element to these series of shows that I thought was super fun to get to play out. What do you think of Megumi not being able to transform and giving the knuckle to Nago and like working with him there? That, honestly, because I've had so many conflicting feelings about Nago up to this point was difficult to see but I got it like they played the storyline so well that I understood why she did like I understood everything behind like her thought process but I also thought that it was very cool that you know Nago decided to take that fight and let her like flex her muscles a little bit which is something that I felt like, especially from his character, was completely unexpected. And I liked that he was in his way recognizing how great she was and was just being like, okay, we're going to do this together. And, you know, and they never said a word about it afterwards. It was just this very much in the moment thing where he was like, okay, you trust me, I trust you, and this is how we're going to take care of monsters from now on. And it was great. I I I love that. This show is a very interesting time period, a very interesting point in time for female representation in common rider, especially with rider powers. And I think like, we'll have more to say on that as we go, because like, this is like, I think there's been like two, three female writers before this show. Like there's definitely one common rider Ryuki. There's definitely one, maybe like, there's a couple in a show where anyone could use the belt, but they're super quick and they probably don't really count. There's like, uh, like maybe like six, six different women that have been writers for comparatively little amounts of time. Like maybe like half a movie is the longest mm-hmm. or like, or like, um, two years ago with, um, crap. Uh, what's her name? Um, who was the female writer? The like, um, Zanki's like tutor, like Shuki. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. She's yeah. one of the longest seen female writers at that point, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a definitely a, the show marks a shift, I think, 
but it's also still like a, it does a good job, but it is also like at a weird point in time for that is all I'll say. Yeah. And, and I'll agree with that. And, you know, I think as we've said before, the thing that the writer shows all do well, at least the ones that I've watched, I'm going to go ahead and put that caveat on it is that they don't diminish the female roles. Now, granted, there hasn't ever been just like an out-and-out female common writer, but they also don't go out of their way to make the female characters feel, you know, belittled or stupid or anything like that. You know, they they have their moments yeah. that shows do where you're just like, oh, maybe you shouldn't have said that, but, but they never make the characters weak and that's important to watch especially when you're looking at shows from like the late 90s early 2000s when you know things are still kind of coming into their footing but the thing with this show is they never diminish the female character's voice to amplify the male hero voice they yeah do a very good job of keeping that balance and that's something i appreciate and even when they are not action characters, not part of maybe like the plot, like the capital P plot saving the world, there's mm-hmm. a lot of them and they're part of the like stuff going on. Like as important as like people talking are, they are uh, still like around and part of conversations, you know? Yeah. And not only that, but I think the one thing that this show does well is that they use those strong female character voices to kind of poke fun at the more machismo aspects of like the writers. Um, and you can see that probably with no one better than um, with um, Nago. Yeah. Yeah. And because he takes himself so seriously, but you start to get to the point in the series, like where we're at now, where almost every female that's around him is like poking at him like yeah time to come out of your shell like you know we get it this is your thing you're you're the tough perfectionist guy but you know you're only 22 quit living like you're 80 it's you know it's time to come out and rejoin civilization so it's it's nice to see how all of those aspects play off of each other Hmm. um there's one more little thing but there's this point where um Otoya that's possessing Wataru is talking to Kivat and says, Oh, are you Kivat the second son? Mm-hmm. And that's great. Cause if you said, Oh, are you Kivat's son? Oh, like, are you Kivat? That's not as cool as just saying, Oh, like, are you Kivat the second son? Like, that's just a very deft way to say something like that. Be like, Oh, like, you do my dad, the second Kivat? Like, that's just like a very deft way to do it. Yeah, for sure. And that's another thing that I really liked about this set of shows was just the fact that even, like I said, as it was answering questions, it was bringing up some new ones. Like with that, you were just like, wait, wait, what? Who's this? Okay, rewind. Give me more of the story here. It's one of those things that you know is eventually going to play out over time. But on the other hand, you're just like, Okay, but we're answering questions now. Tell me all the things. Yeah, and I'm glad this show has the comfortability to set something up because we just watched 
he showed he got the whole fucking like rug ripped from it. So I'm glad the show was able to say in episode 22, hey, like I do your dad, Kivat the second. That's nice. Um, it is, yeah. And to not have you having warned me that we're about to change entire production styles and I'm not going to recognize my new favorite series anymore. That's always a nice thing, dear. Yeah, that doesn't happen much. It just uh, happened that one time. Yeah. Figured that one time would be heartbreaking for me, but you know, what can you do? What we could do is talk about the next episodes. Uh, 21 we- Rhapsody, the fate of. 22 Overture, Fateful Intersection. A lot of fate going on in the show about people. It is, and I'll be honest, I probably don't have as many notes written about these last four episodes as I should because I had become so engrossed in them by that point that I was literally just writing down like one word for each episode because I was just like, don't really want to pay that much attention to my notes. I want to watch the show now. So, no, these are very deep of the character stuff here because like last episode yuri has a moment where she just like leans on otoya after realizing that like she's not sure of herself as much as she thinks that's to like reconsider what she wants to do as far as her mom's killer and stuff um and here we see them having dinner at like a robin stand and like she's laughing at his jokes and then like (laughs) Jiro's looking on really mad with the boys because like his two friends were like, hey, what's up? Um, Ostra girl. Not your girl. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then um, it's clear, like feelings are actually starting to like develop now. And like, I like that because like, it's not like he won her over. It's also like he's definitely improved as a person. And like a lot of the weird stuff he was doing, he's doing less. Not mm-hmm. all the way. He's still fucking flirting with anything that moves this this whole time. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, um so this also like leads to the 2000s where Kengo wants to be mentored by Dago now, so like to pay him for mentorship, he's like let's have a double date. And there's also like, a double date happening cuz like Jiro's whole strategy is like I can't she can't be with Otoya if I give her a ring. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, like, he, so my logic here is he asks Shima for permission. Shima, she, he must have been her guardian when, like, in middle school, like, 14 or 15, her mom died in those couple of years. But either way, I was like, why should he give permission? He's her boss. And I was like, oh, like, maybe he was her guardian for a little bit, you know? Uh, that's what I thought. Regardless, I, yeah. I feel like the way that she approached him after that was perfect, where she was just like, how fucking dare you? Like, you do not have ownership over me. Um, This, the way that they played out this quote unquote love triangle between them was phenomenal. It really was because you had this main character, Yuri, who genuinely cares for both of these guys. Like, for whatever reason, they have both, like, formed attachments to her and her to them, whether she realized it or not, even with someone as ridiculous as a Toro. And um, it's really clever the way that they played that whole thing out, especially because the way that they did it with Jiro's character was perfect. I mean, 
I hate to say that because I love him as an actor, but he literally breaks my heart in everything that I watch him play in. So I don't know why I was surprised this time. I will get to this scene that ends this like whole like episodes like later, but I do really love the way that he plays his hurt overall in this and his like, yeah, his relation of why. Cause he's just like very much like fighting Hotoya here. He's like, okay, I guess we're connected, hanging out, and like she has feelings for both of us, but I put a ring on it and she hasn't taken it off. Therefore, mm-hmm. she's mine. She'll be my wife. I think that that's why it was so fun too, though, because when you're, when you have characters that are as different as Jiro and Hotoya are, the writers really could have just made that into some kind of like machismo bloodbath. But they didn't. I mean, they very much played it along the veins of, you know, this is in the end still, you know, a children's show. So they're just going to pick at each other for a long time before anything really happens. They're just going to keep, you know, trading these barbs and like punching each other under the table and stuff like that. That's so much more realistic. Exactly. But they're going to do it like also in front of the ladies so that they also show like, you know, that they're the alpha or whatever the situation is. But it was just so freaking entertaining to watch. Like, even I was like, I don't know, I kind of would like to be Yuri in this moment. Just just for a minute, just to kind of experience having these two very large personalities fighting over me. That's just it, it was so much fun to play out. I love everything about like that version too. We're like, so Ricky's there in his like mesh shirt, Frankenstein man. And like, he like, he wants nothing but food. He tells his date, you'll bear my descendants. This is like, ew. And then like, he like goes to find her and like, she says, what? Then he eats her and then he comes back and they're like, oh, what happened to her? He's like, oh, I ate her. And they're like, oh, they're like, cool. Like, what? <laughs> that was my favorite part of the whole series was them going, on the first date? All right. I was like, okay, goddamn, that was not a little kid's joke, and I appreciate it. And, like, Hotoya meets this girl from his kindergarten and is like, oh, yeah, you brought me this. Let's get married. <laughs> and she, like, plays him the whole time, too. Like, yeah, like, my brother needs money for this. And he happily goes to do it, though. I mean, that's that kind of shows you everything that you need to know about his personality. He's silly and goofy and will go out of his way to get attention. But when he likes someone, he really will bend over backwards for him. So I think that this storyline was very fun to show. Like, that is his very human side. While he'll joke and make all the worst pickup lines in the world, he's also still going to be like that friend that you can count on. And I think that was important to show, like, in his character development. I do love how... um <laughs> In this show and the in like other shows like too, like they'll do the thing where like there will be characters who like are ostensibly doing well monetarily because like both Atoyo and like Wataru have a house, but like they also are like, oh, the only way I could make any money to give you is to work a job. It's like, okay, like you're at like this weird like level of everything all my fashion, my food, and my housing is paid for, but I have zero money <laughs> for plot reasons you know Not only that but also like in every single one of these series you're hearing that from people who are literally at a cafe every day and i'm like you know they're always telling us millennials that if we quit eating the avocado toast we could afford housing 
why is this not carrying over to these shows? Like, quit eating your avocado toast at your tea shop and go out and make a real living and maybe you won't have to be a writer or whatever. I Like, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, I don't yeah. Know arching theme is there. It's just, like, very funny. It's like, oh, yeah, this person is living comfortably. However, if they ever need to have anybody, they're going to work at a construction site for two days. Either that or just, you know, pick up a job at your cafe because that seems to be the other big trope. Oh, you know, if you need some place to work, I could, you know, stand to have somebody here giving out coffee twice a day and that'll be enough to pay all your bills somehow. To be fair, I've never been a hot boy in the 80s in Japan, and I think maybe that's just a really easy way to get hired at a cafe. That's true. I think we missed our calling. I After this, let's go be hot boys in Japan in the 80s. I figured it out. I solved it. Regardless, um, I also like the 2000s date too because it's just like there's just like one woman there it's like oh nago you're so cool and like follows him the next day is like oh like you're so cool and manly is to like someone after you've only met them once and of course like um the most realistic thing is the shy cute one immediately gets like there's like some woman there it's just like yeah i gotcha this one's mine (laughs) Oh, it's called the apricot ice cream all over me. That's it. I can't live without her. And of course, there's like Bio too, where it's like, oh, um, ah, she's like, she's very clearly like the cute waitress and everything. I was like, oh, yeah, she's the real one here. Yeah, she's the uh, what's that? She's all that back in the early 2000s, late 90s. Just take off her glasses and she's perfect now. She's a prom queen. I did. I was totally like super hurt though when Kengo says that he likes her and they go on the date and it doesn't work out. But then she's at the cafe and like there's this point where like um he comes in to see that like Wataru also likes her. I was like, oh, it's fine, bro. And he just looks so sad. <laughs> it's like, oh, you're being a good friend, but also that sucks. It it does suck, but I feel like that's the thing with uh, Gango Murcharo, though, is the fact that they, I, I don't know, like, as big of a meathead as Kango is, I feel like he kind of gets when people genuinely care about him, and he understands, like, that's the kind of person Murcharo is, and I think that that's, like, even if they don't acknowledge it directly, part of why his character was so willing to back off was just because he was like, oh, well, this is my bro, and my bro hasn't left the house in a year, and my bro likes this sis, so I'm going to totally let that happen. Like, it, it kind of shows as big of a bonehead as he is, he kind of gets it in a way that not a lot of characters do. So I appreciated that about him, just the fact that they finally allowed him to have some depth. What I do want to mention, though, is that um, Mio is another writer alumni. Of course. No, what else was she in? She was in my favorite show, Kamen Rider 555 Fies, um, from a- about five years earlier. She was uh, probably in the top three main characters of that show. Um, she was like a, pretty much like one of the most, if not like the most like central characters throughout. Um mm-hmm. Very different character. She's much nicer in this show compared to she could be like a real asshole in the other show. 
Nice. Uh, but yeah, she's just like uh, is back here, and I really love like Mio and like Watar, but also like even if I hadn't known, I would have been like, huh, this is a pretty early episode. Confident to be so damn happy. What's gonna happen next? <laughs> I thought that there was something, um, and I might be jumping, I'm sorry, I don't have this written in my notes, but there was something very endearing about her at that um, photo shoot and looking mm-hmm. at Wataro and and that being why she smiled. That was so fucking endearing. Like, even with my cold heart, I couldn't get around that. It was just adorable in a way that you, know, you don't get to see in a lot of TV these days. So it was great fun to watch. And they're talking like, oh, yeah, like I have like five newspaper subscriptions. And then like they both get tofu when the guy comes by because they can't say no. What is it like frozen tofu or something? Even I was like, oh, God, I'd like tofu, but that sounds horrible. It's like a, a cold. To- it's like a thing in Japan. And like, a, you know, it, it's like a hot dog, but tofu. <laughs> OK, yeah. I, I might be out of my depth here. Maybe I just need to fling myself some tofu from a cart and I'll be good. I. I, I would love some cart tofu because I would just be like, okay, I'm doing this. But uh, also, I feel like so, that would be both of us. Like, we would both be the person that somebody could toss us out on a bench and we'd be like, huh, guess we're having cold tofu today. I love street food. <laughs> I um have always made a point to like eat street food, like when, whenever I've been in like a new country, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. How else are you going to experience the best food? Anybody can get the shit from a cafe. You need to get that guy from a, uh, you need to get that food from a guy who has a cart and doesn't look like he's washed his hands in three years. That's where you're going to get your good meal. And also make sure you also go to the McDonald's to see what the hell's going on there. That's always fun to be. This is off, but right. It's weird. But <laughs> that's another thing. Um, I do love how the way they flirt again is they don't get the tofu. And then she like takes him on a shopping date and says, I always get the clothes that people say I look good in. Like I want to pick up my own stuff. Yeah. 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 And is then he picks out a ring for her. Kind of reminded me of his dad possessing him and buying all those clothes, like without his permission. <laughs> so that's why that made me laugh. Cause I was just like, he gets it. He just doesn't know he gets it. <laughs> And then, of course, like, there's that moment where, like, she also needs a ring and has him pick it out, though. It's like, okay, this is laid on thick, but you're very cute. So it's fine. Young couple. We'll let it go this time. Yeah. Being obvious about liking each other. What are you? <laughs> Marks. And yeah. Um, then she also, like, gets fired from her job for messing up as soon as she's, like, cute. And it's like, oh, no. And then, like, returns it all except for the um, little, like, ring. And it's like, oh. And um, also we get like a, I guess Otoya had the money for that stuff. He just was like, oh, I want to fill in for your brother at work. So I'll go there instead of like just giving you money. And he like has bought the dress to fake out the fangire and cross dresses. I had to laugh at that because it just seemed like something his character would do. Like it, it didn't even surprise me. I did not think that out at all. I was just like, yep, this, this flows. This is natural. <laughs> oh, what can you do? And also like, there's that point where like, he's talking to like Yuri and Jiro and like groping himself. And, oh, it's like not too bad being a woman. And like, she just laughs at him. It's like, oh yeah, here's where, you know, like this war has been lost. Like Jiro, <laughs> once she yeah. likes him. 
what he talks. He talks all the time. What are you gonna do? Pretty much. I I feel like like they weren't obvious, but there were a lot of signs there, like exactly how that was gonna go, because she calls him an idiot like ninety eight percent of the time. But it's the two percent she's not calling him one that that's what you need to worry about, Jiro, and you were just too busy being arrogant to do it. Yeah, and um, I do love how. <laughs> They end the episode by like, oh, um, Megumi keeps the ring because it's important that Watar picked it out. And then Otoya grabs the ring off of Yuri's hand and throws it in the water. <laughs> it, it, there was so many great things around them, like going to war over her that it, Obviously, as a feminist, there are parts of me that are like, oh, yeah, some of that is very gross. Toxic masculine. On the other hand, they are both super sweet guys and great actors. And to say, see all of this play out on screen. So much fun. Just I, I, I don't have a criticism. Like the way the whole thing played out was just so great to watch. And, you know, I loved it and was rooting for somehow all of them at the same time throughout this whole thing. And that brings us very interestingly to the next last two episodes, episode 23, Variation Fugitives Forever, and episode 24, Emperor Golden Fever. Can I tell you what I named these just to lead in? Yeah. Okay, great. Episode 23 is quite literally just named What the Fuck, Jiro? Episode none. 24 is named Fuck This Sad Show Man. God damn it, Kip. I hate your guts. I can't believe we had to stop here. And that pretty much sums up both episodes, I feel like. So six months into Kamara Kiva. That's a good update. Well, not for them, for for the show, not for us. Like, we've been much shorter. But, uh, yeah. Um, these episodes start with the queen gets another, like, Fangar like says goodbye to her husband and then is like you stupid ignorant fake guy ah and kills her mm-hmm. uh and we also see um just like throughout this whole thing like she's just hunting down these like couples and that's a real it says a lot about the world like that's just like what she does like like she travels the world being hot and killing lovers. I think that there was something very cool about them introducing that dynamic, not only because it kind of gives you like a sense of what the leadership and hierarchy is with the Fangary, but it also gives a really great dynamic to the world around like the writers as how they're operating. Because unless a Fangary like literally acts up in public, you don't know they exist. So I thought it was really cool that you start to now get into this whole thing of, well, these people are out here and living normal lives. Like they might be monsters when the lights go out, but, you know, they have decided they're going to settle down with this human and, you know, live out the marriage and parenting thing and just go about their normal everyday lives. And literally no one would know except for this one particular person. And I just felt like it added a really cool dynamic to the storytelling overall. Yeah. Cause like the implication you get is that like the finger community is small enough that, you know, everybody over time that like they'll get found out or like put it down. But, um, I think it's 
interesting because a lot of like it's very important in the modern camera shows how they have their who can become a monster. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting here that they didn't pick people becoming monsters. They pick people who have that intrinsic trait and then make them all kinds of like people with anxiety, people that are sad, like business owners that like are like being like predatory. Like there's so much that they're saying too about like how Wataru is like this like herbivore male, this uh, dude who's like not romantically or like business wise, like aggressive. And also like how these monsters are all just like people who are like in this archetype. They're very human. Like Hmm. their motivations have all basically been like something or someone that they care about. Like, outside like that one dude that like liked killing young artists or whatever but Mm -hmm. but i also think that that's probably one of the reasons why it's this is so much of a fun concept to play off of because once again only going back to my experiences but just from what we've watched from common writers together it seems like the bad guys are always uh human say short-sighted because that doesn't feel appropriate they have a very specific skill set and they have a very specific goal in mind for everything that they do. But this is the first series that we've explored, at least together, where you're finally like starting to see another side to the quote unquote bad guys of, well, uh, there's some gray area there because they can be technically a bad guy, but choose not to live as one they can choose to just do the things that we would consider normal. So it, it definitely adds a really fun dynamic to an already fun series that to play that off of also having a main main character who has his own issues with like anxiety and existing within the world to bring all that together was really great for this series and kind of like the theme they were trying to develop. Yeah. Like it's just to make it, intrinsic is very purposeful and very well played with here Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of love going on here one is that like the owner is like oh it's my 34th birthday (laughs) and you know he has to play 34 and 56 he's 45 it happens (laughs) but um it was just so sweet that he was like i've never had a birthday before so everything everyone gives him he thinks is the best thing ever i just enjoyed that childlike aspect of it so much and um this leads to Hotoyo saying it's his birthday soon and like this whole like through line of like yuri's trying to make him omelet rice he's like oh you always order that and like you don't like anything else and she's terrible at it you know (laughs) yeah the worst rubber rice and I, I loved that just because I don't want to say that they had made her character good at everything up to this point, but they kind of had. So to kind of see this very real, like, human flaw within her where she wanted to make this person that she cared about a specific meal and, like, butchered it time after time after time after time was just... It just added a whole human dimension to this character that I was not expecting. And I enjoyed so much because I feel like all of us have been through that. So it was just it was great the way that they played that out. Well, also, the two things that we've shown her not be good at cooking his favorite meal and playing his favorite instrument. Like, that's really interesting to be like, okay, and this is like 
this like two lovers, like these like two people that like have fallen for each other, like it doesn't matter that like they don't <laughs> match. Like there's no like gift of the magi thing happening. Like you can't give them what they like love the most except for you. And like it's like a fun like point to say, oh yeah. And you don't need to be at all relevant to the interests or the desires of someone that loves you. They love you. That's not important. You know? And I think that was especially important from his character because he plays such a, like, goofy guy who just kind of charms everyone he meets. And, like, that's his skill. That's what he does. Like, he's obviously a talented musician, but his very real skill in the series is people he comes across, he kind of draws them into his world. So the fact that he looked at Yuri as, you know, another woman that he was going to charm, but then had this extra depth where like, you know, he kind of outright said that the way that she cooked that meal wasn't his favorite, but he still tried to pretend to enjoy it to make her feel better like that's not something that a a regular person is going to do if they don't actually care about you um and so that's part of the charm of this series for me is the fact that even when the character is playing someone who is quote unquote shallow they do it in a way that is very much like you know i still care about you as an individual um And so that was fun to see, especially from his character, because it was kind of unexpected, like because he'd been playing a very shallow kind of being this entire time. But he knew in that moment it was important to her to get this right. So he tried. I mean, he still did it in his silly way, but, you know, he tried and that kind of showed a different level of depth than you're used to seeing in something like that. You didn't make me a good omelet does not stop eating exactly and like still tells her that you know she's his heart and bound by his destiny and this that and the other shit the entire time like it doesn't stop him at all and i think too like um he's constantly like loving people trying to like get with them but also like he does make a point that it is like different with you where like he had some read on her or something like i'm not sure like maybe he just like truly believes that or like he's like or he's just like plot. They instantly fell in love because true love, whatever. But um, I do like how like he hasn't stopped. He's like, well, Yuri's not into me, so I might as well like make out with my kindergarten crush or whatever. Like, <laughs> you know, he didn't stop being himself. And he's not even that badly embarrassed, even when she does start to like him. Yeah, I think that's another fun thing about his character, too, though, is I kind of felt like that whole thing was done because there was a part of him that knew it would bother her because he always, like, had this very real belief that they were meant to be together. So I think that even as, like, his character knew that this, you know, kindergarten girl that he'd had this thing with forever ago was someone that he cared for it it wasn't yuri and he was willing to go along with it because he felt like that's what she wanted him to do but you know i feel like it was never not obvious where like his head and heart still was even while he was committing himself to trying to make this other relationship plausible if not like actually work out one thing the show has going for is that 
plot lines will happen in parallel. So like when something's happening, like, oh, I'm bad at cooking, like it's also happening in parallel of like Mio being bad at modeling. Like there's like a duality stuff where like it's able to get away with like doing something simple without it feeling that simple or tropey. It's like, okay, this is important because there's an emotion that we're trying to resonate across timelines, across people, across relationships. And like that's like a very good place to be because there's very little you can do to really mess that up if you can just have an idea for what you want to get across like whatever you do can work for that yeah and i feel like that would be a complicated storyline regardless to have this duality between the the 2000s and the 80s like they did in the show but everything that they did they have done up to this point so well and we're getting to a point now where these things are starting to tie into each other and they're doing it in such a meaningful way that I, I don't feel like I've missed anything by jumping timelines. I legitimately feel like it added something to the show. And I think that that probably isn't something a lot of shows could successfully do. I mean, I feel like in the 90s, I saw a couple different iterations of shows try to do something similar. But the way that this show has not only been able to jump those timelines, but to tie the characters into each other in such a meaningful way has been just an absolute joy to watch. I really like the way that we see the like guest characters for this episode, the couple, um, Shinzi and Ryoko. Um, cause we see them in the eighties and like, they're like having this fight over the fact that like they can't be together. And like, she might not know why, but he's like, oh no, we'll get hunted down and killed. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a point too where um, they decide to be together, but then like he gets accosted by, um, or like they're about to be attacked by the queen. And then like Otoya flirts with her and is like, hey, what's up? And then like it kind of distracts the whole situation. Yeah. And that comes back in the second episode, like who was like, they find him beat to shit. And like rescue him, he does not. He does not flirt with her at all. It's like, oh, like it's very clear, like you're a part of a family that helped me or whatever. But like, um, he like then he just throws a bike at like the like fang guy or guide, like trying to like not be killed. And it's like, hey, what's up, Maya? I saved you. And she's like, oh, thank you. And then slaps him. And it's like, okay. He asked her to do it, again. Do it again. I have not laughed that hard. In a long time, but him like clutching his cheek, running after her, going, do it again. I I died like I, I still will bust out laughing if I think about it too hard because he wants the love. He doesn't care how it is or if he likes it. he's like, OK, I guess this is like a kiss from a woman like her. And it kisses me. And you like me. So keep liking me. Keep keep hitting me. I love adoration. Exactly. He's like the kid that has figured out that any attention is good, even if it's negative attention. So he's he's all for it. He's like, hell yeah, beat me up some more. I'm down. Yeah. Um. Man, this couple is just so heartbreaking because they're like tree. They play and everything and that comes back later. But um, let's talk about y- your boy Jiro, though, and well, what he does here. Breaks my heart again. Second series in a row. Thank you very much. He beats Otoya near death and tosses him in the water for him to get saved. Um, and says, now Yuri will be all mine. 
and he kidnaps her and like traps her in vines and everything and is like we'll live here now in the middle of this fucking forest because that's by these rocks here yes uh and he's like all right like you will love being all the stuff and then like toyo's dead and then like um when he comes back is like kind of kill him and then like it's gonna kill her and then he has this moment where he's like fuck i'm just doing this because i want to restart my race huh <laughs> i probably need to just like i probably need to like just i can't restart my race unwillingly with somebody like him like even when he like starts to like get into yuri like he frames it as oh she's strong enough to bear my pups like not even like he particularly even likes her like right not as much as he's willing to kill them both for it. He's like, oh, I like maybe did fall for you, but also this was motivated by a need and I need to be a person. And like he like then leaves is like, yeah, sorry, I'm going to go down. Yeah, that was the part that was weird for me because I was like, OK, I love him as an actor, love all the characters he plays. But the fact that he literally like two seconds ago was holding this girl up by her neck. But now he decided the right thing to do was to let her live. So he just walked off and that's it. That's guys, guys, seriously, guys. No, no one's going to arrest. OK, great. No one's going to arrest him. This is what we're doing. I mean, you can't arrest a werewolf. Much. But I mean, I, I get it. And I do like the way that that whole thing kind of brought Yuri and Atoya together. Like, I, I'm not going to deny that, but it's still kind of. I think it was jacked up that Jiro got to act out like a fucking wildebeest and not really have consequences for his actions. Yeah, that's true. Um, I um, do think, too, that um, it's just I want to see how they do next for him because he is in a different place. And also the show is like ended a bunch of arcs. The show is like, like about to like enter into like a new phase i think right now too it seems and i'm with you i'm very curious because obviously when we're looking at um the updated timeline however you want to phrase it he's still a part of it i mean he's still there kind of trying to be there for the new common rider so yeah i'm still curious about how his arc kind of resolves itself but yeah, you know, we'll see. What more can you say with this series? There's always something to surprise you. Yeah. Um. To put a cap on the episodes. Um. In the modern times, the couple, the Fingar guy, like Shinji, has been like stealing jewelry for his wife, who's like on her deathbed in the hospital. Yes. Yeah. This is my fuck you kept moment. This whole episode. Yeah. And um. <laughs> <laughs> We already talked about um like the other past stuff like, and then like um, Wataru like fights him as he's leaving the place, uh the like photo shoot that like Mio's at, and then like finds him at the hospital and like talks to him about like stealing and stuff I was like oh, is that what she wants? And then like then like um, he like gets them to talk, and Ryoko says oh like. Let's go to that tree we planted. The soul. Yeah. That singing tree or whatever, the sleeping tree. Um, and 
he can't get a taxi, but Mio's there with her food delivery place. Her bento delivery. <laughs> and takes him to the tree. Uh, and they see their tree has grown great in the Yeah. I, I thought that was so just absolutely devastatingly touching in just a very, very real way. But also the way that they, um, you know, after that scene plays out, he kind of suddenly has all of these battles to attend to. That was, I think, played in a very great way because it was like showing he got his reprieve. Like he got to show his wife her last couple of happy moments. And now he kind of has to atone for what he's been his entire life. Um, And so that was played really well, even if the whole thing was fucking heartbreaking from start to finish, because you literally like every single character that entered that scene, you were like, I see where they're coming from. So it was it was difficult to watch, but it was very emotionally gratifying also because you kind of started to see these caps starting to come together on these storylines. And right before she dies, she does say that she knows that he was a fan guy or then like she dies and he's sad. It's like, oh, this is a nice moment. This is beautiful. And like they're watching. And then like Nago shows up and he's like, hey, what's up? Hey, you're, you're a burglar. You're sin now, buddy. Like, shut up, Nago. It's not your turn. And he like gets his ass beat, too. But like um, Mio gets hurt and like on her hand shows up the like queen symbol. And then like... um. And Wataru doesn't see that and loses his fucking shit. The dude sees that and he's like, oh, you were trying to get us the whole time. And like, you did get to have your final, your final like wife moments. You weren't. Could she have prevented you from doing it at this point? And then like, but he's so enraged that like he attacks her and like doesn't trust Wataru and he has his moment. Yeah. And he fucking goes Super Saiyan in that moment. But like. I thought it was cool, too, though, because you kind of got to watch the guys in their castle look around (laughs) and, like, are listening to the sound coming in. They're like, what the fuck? And that's when you, like, kind of know, oh, shit, like, Watara's lost his shit. All the shit's going with him. All the shit's gone. That's it. What do you think of his new form? I loved it. I honestly did. I The billowing cape the uh sudden just confidence like the voice change everything about it was just so absolutely on point with being a writer but on top of that for him to come into that form because someone that he literally felt like he was in love with got attacked that was just following the formula to perfection no complaints so um this form is called kiva emperor form Mm. it's like all golden and like cool and also like the pattern that he has inside of his like foot in his main form when he's like his finisher is now like on his chest was really cool um i loved the um the wings on his boots like when he looks down and does that really particular kick attack i loved that that was such a great transition for his character Ugh, so much fun to watch the cape is like perfect because it's like not a full cape it's like a half cape so it's like halfway down his back it's like very flowy yeah it's like a robin cape like if you're mm. watching robin yeah but uh so this form is his final form and this is actually pretty early for this kind of form to show up mm-hmm. they tend to show up in like the mid 30s late 30s um 
so the main Kiva suit actually apparently like was actually really tough on the suit actor's neck because of the like whole like cowl thing and like the chains and stuff. Right. Well, this form got premiered like a bit earlier just to be like, hey, your neck isn't in danger. <laughs> as much, at least. But yeah, it's a very fun form. No, I like it. I I, I like how they, uh, once again, start to wrap up those storylines. But also, it there's enough left open that, you know, if you're like me, you're still looking at Jiro and his two compatriots and you're like, but how did you end up where you are? So a lot of things get answered and there are a lot of things that come around with a nice pretty bow on them, but it isn't closing out all the chapters to where you feel like you're done with the series yet. Like you're still looking at it going, okay, but I, I've got questions and I feel like there's probably going to be more questions. So figure out what's happening here. Yeah. A lot of stuff to see what's next. And like, I also love, um, we don't know what's up with Mio. Like, and she also has that like weird look at the end too. And she's like, okay, she's the queen, but does she know it? What's up with her hands? Yeah. And because there is that part, you're right. Where she actually looks fucking infuriated when Wataru walks out of that battle. So you kind of are left wondering, is she upset with him because he won? Or is there something going on with like her position within these Fangiri and, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, um, I think this next time we're going to see a lot of development for Yuri and Megumi. Um, cool. I think Nago might start doing a bit more <laughs> of an arc, but I also love that like part of his arc was just, like he's such an avatar of like rage and like <laughs> righteousness that he like. According to him, he's just like, yeah, I'll punch the shit out of this fucking wall. I, my favorite part about him is, um, I think I discussed in our last episode how from watching the series, I learned not to judge a character on face value. He's probably the best example of that because he plays a character that you, or at least I've seen in a lot of these series up to this point, where you always have that one, like, straight man that's the guy that is always by the books and he always follows the rules but then they always have like some something in their past or something in their experience that you kind of start to understand why they are the way they are um so i think my thing with him is kind of just waiting to figure out like where all of this is coming from because he does have these areas where he shows you he's not a bad guy he just is very particular about how he likes things. So I'm I'm anxious to see how his storyline plays out. Yeah, me too. I super there's a ton of the series. Like I know broad strokes from watching it before, but there's a ton of details where I'm like, oh shit, I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Or what's really happening here. I can see that because there's a lot happening in this. I mean, there's always been a lot happening in these series, but I feel like this is the first one we've watched where we've got a lot of different threads to kind of hold on to, to figure out where we're going next and like what's been resolved, what hasn't like what we're waiting for answers on. So, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah. But for now I have to ask, 
Who are your top three characters this time? Shit. Okay, that's hard. Um, I'm going to say, first off, Queen Maya. Um, absolute praise Stan, a sexy queen. But on top of that, just um, her whole kind of demeanor with dealing with people. Love that to pieces. Like, she gives no shits. Um, let me see. I actually did have these written down, so give me just a second here. So, aside from her, um, I'm going to have to say that as much of a scumbag as he came across the last couple episodes, Jiro, um, always got a weakness for him. Um, and I'm going to have to say Mio, just because I'm just obsessed with her right now, and I kind of want to know what her story is and what to expect from her next. Mm, interesting. Um, I'll give some props to Yuri. Like her, like I hear, I liked um to see like mommy. She was a very good one-off character. Oh yeah, as both a child and an adult, which kind of cheating is like they're two separate arcs with two characters, but they make them work really well. Um, yeah. And then I'm gonna say um, I like Otoya here. He's doing a lot of interesting work right now. This is a very weird time for him as a character. Yeah, I have to agree. Oh. What about your favorite designer effect that we saw? Hmm. Monster Rider, whatever. Okay, I'm going to have to go with... This kind of feels like cheating. But I'm going to say, anytime that the castle the Jiro and his crew were in got to be transported to another location, I don't know why, I just enjoyed that animation so much. Especially when it didn't act the way that it was expected to, and you kind of got to see the other player or the other characters reactions like but yeah that that's probably my favorite thing of all just watching them sitting inside the castle just kind of throwing their cards down like fuck here we go again and then watching the castle move there's just hilarious to me i don't know why this is my favorite hmm i think i liked um the new emperor form like suit like a lot that was pretty good oh yeah definitely and definitely a close second for me also and um who else? Oh yeah. Um, who was your or um, what was your best outfit this time? Oh man. Okay. Um, I'm going to have to say, and this is just this is a tough one, but it kind of uh stuck in my head. It's going to have to be when Jiro quote unquote proposes to Yuri. He's wearing that all black leather outfit with his aviator sunglasses. It just, I don't know, something about that in the big buckle and me being from Texas, I was like, yep, he's totally doing the cowboy thing. Oh, yeah. Um, I like the cross-dressing from Motoya a lot. I do like when Shinji is in 2008 and he has this big spiky hair that also looks like he's an old man now, but also like he has an age and like he's immortal. I actually really like that. Like, I'm not sure how they did that, but like... It's pretty good. I like that. Yes, for sure. It's all suit. Yeah, and and I'm gonna have to say that my second one was Otoyo um, switching from the um, like printed t-shirts and scarves that Wataru usually wore to his 80s suit. Like that also very much did it for me. Yeah. Uh but where can people find you doing it for you when you're not a uh, boat that's too stuff? Oh, that's hard because this is one of my favorite things to do. Um, I guess if you 
absolutely have to, you can find me on www.arcademilitia.com or um, Arcade Militia on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, We're only one episode out now. We just recorded episode two and we're about to release that coming up. So go ahead and give us a listen if you want. Um, I'm on Instagram under nobody much and I am under uh, Twitter at uh underscore hat sis and um yep i think that's it for me okay uh you can find me at twitter.com at james forge you could find the podcast at common rides me on twitter and instagram there's commonrightme.com for episodes and articles there's slash episodes for links out to different platforms you want to have those all available really easy there's commonrightme.com slash merch all the proceeds going to fun not fun to good places like transparent from last time and like and the Trevor project um i don't know if transparent does stuff after christmas if they do i'll i'll put it there if not i will just to go back to the Trevor project but uh we also love to getting questions comments or just stuff at podcast at com. and then if you want to to a rate and review on apple podcasts uh that would be much appreciated. And that helps us keep uh, on keeping on it. It, it, it um, It's basically what gives us strength, you know? But yeah. So Steph, what do you want to leave them with this time? I want to um, leave you all with, I think the biggest lesson that we could possibly learn from this series so far is uh, don't judge a book by its cover. Sometimes that weird kid collecting snail shells is trying to make a nice varnish for his violin and maybe cut him some fucking slack. How about that? Yeah. Fair. <laughs> we are pro snail here. That's right. <laughs>